0: Father, as we study the life of Jacob, we're reminded that uh, this man was the one who would become the patriarch of the great nation of Israel and whose name would be given to that nation, the name that we even use today. And Father, as we are reminded that the name Israel means prince, we're so thankful that the prince of peace did come 2,000 years ago and that he has brought to us hope he has brought to us everlasting life. And, Father, even as we think of the situation as it persists today, we would pray for the nation of Israel. The Scripture teaches us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And, Father, we would pray that somehow the Word of God would make its road inroads into the hearts of, of the people of the Old Testament. And, Father, there might be many of them one to you in the years ahead. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity you give us to study the Word of God, to share together on a Sunday morning, and we ask you to be present with us right now and throughout this Sunday school as the Word is proclaimed, and give us understanding of your Word as we read it today. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 31, Genesis chapter 31, reading at verse 43, to the end of the chapter. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Yagar-Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galed. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galed. And Mizpah, for he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from the other. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham The God of Nahor and the God of of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal. And they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. As we have noted in the earlier part of the 31st chapter of Genesis, as uh, Jacob had moved his whole household away from Haran and across the Euphrates River and down the Via Maris past Damascus and then branching off to the King's Highway, he is down in the northern part of what is known in that part of the world historically as Gilead. And there encamped in Gilead, he was finally overtaken by Laban. Laban had heard, eventually, of Jacob's escape, and so he had gathered his men, and he had pressed hard after Jacob. And remember and noted that as you put the different uh, figures together, together there, you discover that it, it it was two weeks between the time that Jacob left and Laban caught up with him. And it took that full two weeks in order for Jacob to move his whole family and all those animals as far as the northern edge of Gilead. But there Laban caught up with him. But remember uh, last time we read towards the end there that just before Laban was going to overtake Jacob, the night before God appeared to Laban and God said, you will, not do, you will not say good or ill to Jacob. In other words, you're going to be neutral towards him. All that you have thought in terms of evil against him, you will not be able to carry out. This really diffused Laban. His wrath had built. And, and you know how it is. Uh, probably uh, you've been in a situation like this where somebody has offended you, and as you think about taking revenge, your, your, your anger builds, and hopefully as a Christian we're able to defuse that and pray for such a person and, and not take out our anger on them. But uh, certainly in Laban's case, who is not a believer, uh, that anger built and built and built, and it was to the boiling point when God finally diffused him that night and he was like a toothless lion as he came in to face Jacob and said, I could have done you great harm, but because God spoke to me, I cannot do you any harm. In order to patch things up without admitting guilt, and Laban was not into admitting guilt, he would not even allow the, uh, the slightest uh, understanding that maybe he was sorry for what he had done, how he had changed Jacob's wages. Ten times Jacob said, and and he had uh, put Jacob in at such a great disadvantage. And you remember we read all of the things that uh, Laban required of Jacob. If if an animal tore the if a wild beast tore one of the sheep, Jacob had to make good, even though it was Laban's sheep. And and if if somebody stole the animal, Jacob had to make it up, even though it was Laban's animal that was taken. He was responsible all the way down the line, and his wages was wages were ta- uh, changed. 10 times, and yet Laban would not admit any guilt here at all. He was too prideful to do that. Instead, he, he changed the subject and said, look, these are my daughters, and these are my grandchildren, and the flocks you have here really come from my flock, none of which could be denied because that was true. But God had given it all, all these animals and all these people to Jacob. So Laban decides to ask Jacob if they could kind of patch things up by making a covenant together there in the northern uh, extremity of Gilead. And so they raised a monument. Jacob erected a pillar, a a stone up on end, and he invited all the others to come and bring stones and and make a big pile here, a monument. Who knows how high it was, maybe as high as a man. Uh, A monument there which would stand as a... Uh, ongoing remembrance of the covenant made this day between Laban and Jacob. And as they raised this monument, they sat down to a meal, a friendship meal. Now, Jacob agreed to do this because he knew he wasn't going to get anything more out of Laban than this. Laban was never going to say, Oh, I'm sorry, Jacob, I've really offended you. I've done these things. He was never going to do that. So if, if he was willing to at least... You know, agree to some measure of peace, that was fine with Jacob, because he was going to be headed towards Esau, and he certainly didn't need someone behind him who, who was his enemy. And so to make peace with Laban was important at this point. And you'll notice in, in reading the passage as we did this morning, that uh, Laban called the name of the monument Yehagar-Sahadutha, which was Aramaic for stone pile of witness, And Jacob called it really the same name, except it's translated in Hebrew, Galad, which meant witness pile. But we don't know it by either of those terms, because neither of those terms is again repeated in Scripture. The term we know it by is the term Mizpah, because Mizpah is a term which is repeated in Scripture. And Mizpah means watchtower or lookout. And as it's used here, it can have two meanings. First of all, remember, as you read in verse 49, Laban said, may the Lord watch between you and me as we're absent one from another. So to watch, Mitzpah, uh, the place of watching. So it could have borne that name because it was the place where Laban made this statement. But it also could bear that name because nearby was, very possibly, a stone watchtower. They were very common all over the land on both sides of the Jordan River. These watchtowers were built for shepherds and uh, vineyard keepers and others to watch for wild animals that might harm the, the flocks or might harm the, the vineyards or the orchards. So they were very common. If you go over there in the land of Israel, I don't, did, did you see any watchtowers while you were over there? I'm sure you <laughs> did. There's, there's a lot of them still left in, in the Holy Land in Israel. It's possible, some think, that uh, it is the same Mizpah that's referred to in Judges 11.34. I'll just uh, turn to that if you don't wish to turn there. But when it's talking about the judge Jephthah, it tells us in Judges 11.34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him. And, of course, the rest of the story is a very sad story, and we won't talk about that today. But the point is, that Jephthah lived on the other side of the Jordan River. And it's very possible he lived at this same site or near the same site where this monument was raised and this covenant was made between Laban and Jacob. Now, it's interesting as you read the words here, what is said. In verse 49, Laban invoked the name of Yahweh. God. whose God? Jacob's God. He, in, he invoked his name implying that it was Jacob who needed watching to be sure that he didn't mistreat Laban's daughters. You know, go off and marry some other women and, and, and put them in, in a, a, disadvantage, a disadvantage, disadvantageous position. He acknowledged what was true, and that was there was no other witness there, no third party, no... Uh, Nobody who wasn't either allied with Laban or allied with Jacob here. No third party except God alone. And so God was witness. And this was true. It's possible, as you well know, for a pagan, heathen person to say a true thing. Even about God. That doesn't have anything to do with their actual relationship with God, but it's possible for them to say such a thing. And and this is true. God was witness. Elohim was witness there to this covenant. But the implication, what he is saying by this, is that it was Jacob who needed to be watched, not Laban. You've got to watch this Jacob guy, you know, he's a he's a deceiver. And and but of course I'm an innocent, real innocent party in this whole situation. Of course Laban was as great a deceiver as was Jacob, that's for sure. And in fifty one, the statement he makes there where he says, Behold this heap and behold the pillar which I have set Maybe a statement uh, that's even a direct uh, lie, because he is not the one who erected the pillar or the heap, but he's taking credit for it. It simply, of course, may be a statement of, 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 of joint uh, agreement here. Now, verse 49 of chapter 31 of Genesis is known to many people as the Mizpah benediction. And many people quote it, May the Lord watch between you and me as we are absent one from the other. Now, if we take this little phrase out of context and and we say that to each other, there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. It is a perfectly good benediction. It's as good as any benediction that one might say. But as you look at it within context, it was not intended to be either a benediction nor a blessing. Because the words come out of the mouth of a pagan, Laban. They're not the words of God out of Jacob's mouth. They're words out of Laban's mouth. And what he means by this is a hypocritical threat, is really what he's implying here. The Lord watch between you and me, and he keeps his eye on you because you might do something bad, is what he's saying here. He's not making some very kind, gentle statement like, Oh, the Lord, watch between you and me while we are absent from one another until that day when we can rejoin with se- such pleasure and such joy. I mean, Laban is a, is a jerk. And so obviously what he's saying here is, is not uh, you know, intended as a godly statement, although we can use it as such if our hearts are intending it in, in that way. In verse 52, we find that Laban designates this witness pile, this, this bound of rocks here, as a boundary. He says, let this be a boundary between you, Jacob, and me. This will be a line of demarcation. Now, it wasn't, he wasn't saying it was going to be a political boundary in that everything south and, and west of it is yours and everything north and east of it is mine because he couldn't make such a claim. But what he was saying was that this will be a boundary in that you will never cross this boundary to my harm and I will never pass this witness pile to your harm. In other words, it was sort of a mutual non-aggression pact that they were making here. Uh, neither of us will pass this pile for the harm of the other. But why is Laban doing this? I mean, it was Laban who was chasing Jacob. It was Laban who was going to do Jacob great bodily harm if he could have. So why is he doing this? I mean, he's making it so that he can't later on, you know, maybe God will forget what God said to me or, or maybe it won't matter to me later on. He's, what is he doing? Well, he is... Protecting his own hide here. Because he knows that Jacob will soon inherit all that is Isaac's, Jacob's father. And Isaac is a powerful, wealthy man. Isaac has, you know, much larger flocks than Jacob has here at this point. And and Isaac has a huge number of, of people associated with his household I mean, he has all that Abraham had plus more. And Abraham had enough men, remember, to drive off a Mesopotamian army. And so Laban is covering his own, protecting himself here, from the fact that Jacob someday might want to take revenge on him and might want to lead an army against him, thinking about, oh, that guy Laban, what he did to me. And so he's saying, hey, you know, this this will be boundary. And you will never cross it, and neither will I to your harm. Laban invokes the God of Abraham. He invokes the Elohim of Nahor and Terah in response to this. Now, he is the inheritor of Terah's teraphim. Remember, we've already talked about the teraphim, these little clay idols that uh, Laban had in his household that his daughter Rachel stole when when they left. When when Jacob left, his wife went in there and grabbed all these little clay idols and bundled them up and put them in her camel saddlebag and took off with them, remember? And that was one of the reasons Laban was chasing after them. And when he caught up with them, he did search for them, but she was sitting on them and because she was in the way of women at that particular time. uh, He uh, didn't search that camel bag, uh, saddlebag, and so she got away with it. But um, Jacob, of course, was not aware that they were in his midst. He didn't want them. What do I want these idols for? I worship the true and the living God. Who needs clay idols? Even though they were the family idols that probably had come from Ur of the Chaldees. And, and even though, as I've mentioned before, uh, they may have represented the um, uh, inheritance factor they have may, may have been sort of like the family heirloom that whoever gets them is the, is the main descendant of the family. Whatever the case was, they were not discovered by, by Laban. But what I think you'll find here is really in Laban's mind is, as he says what he says, he says, Yahweh the Elohim of, of Nahor and Terah, you now the word Elohim can be translated as God in, in the sense of Elohim created the heavens and the earth, but Hel- Elohim was, was the general Old Testament name for, for, glo- for God in plural, no matter who the gods were. So I think he's talking about the gods of my father, Terah, in in, in in this he was incorporating the little... Clay idols, too, that were involved. And what he's trying to do is tie them all together. And he's trying to say that really, the gods of terror from beyond the Euphrates and, and the god that you worship, it's all the same. It's just one god. Uh, I mean, you know, god is god. Whatever he, whether he's little statues or whatever you call him, he's just god, you know. He, he has this universalistic attitude, which is very common, especially in pluralistic America today. Many people want to say, well, my goodness, I mean, who are we to say that this is the only way? I mean, isn't Buddha just right too? And, and, and you know, the Mohammedans can't be wrong, can they? I mean, they're so, they're, they're so committed to, to what they're doing. I mean, they bow down five times a day to Mecca, and, and, and they worship, and they stand there with their eyes shut, and they pray so fervently. Can't they also be right? Jesus said, of course, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man be he Muhammad or be he uh, Siddhartha Gautama, will come to the Father, but by me. And that is the truth of what Jacob knows too. And Jacob does not argue because he doesn't feel it's worth the point. Now, in the 24th chapter, I'll just turn to it here, Uh, just read a little bit of that. 24th chapter of Joshua, in the second verse, it says... Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor. And they served other gods. This implies that Terah continued to be a pagan, a polytheistic uh, worshiper. And uh, so that seems to be what Laban is drawing upon here. So Jacob says, Whatever you want to call all of this, I serve the God whom my father fears. The God of Isaac is my God, and he is the one I worship, and he alone I worship. And then, to show Laban how it's done, he made a sacrifice to Yahweh. And everyone was invited to to the meal that was prepared by Jacob, And this sacrifice and this meal put a seal to the covenant. This covenant is sealed. What we have agreed to will forever be in concrete, if you will. The next morning, Laban left. He kissed his daughters goodbye. He kissed his grandchildren goodbye. And he disappeared over the horizon back towards Haran. Do you think his daughters longed for him, wished he would stay. Do you think the grandchildren really cared? There was such animosity between Laban and the family of Jacob that I think they were all glad to see him go. Because, as the daughter said earlier, what portion do we have with my father? He has taken what what should have been ours and he has spent it on himself. All those years that Jacob had labored and the value of all that he had done. Did he use any of that for the benefit of his daughters? Absolutely not. He would have, sent, he would have kept Jacob there, had he been able to do this, he would have kept Jacob there working as a common shepherd and, and, and never having anything of his own, completely dependent upon Laban. That's what Laban would have done had he had his way. But God intervened on behalf of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and the children. You can imagine as Laban went back over the horizon and as he headed back towards Haran that he didn't have near the enthusiasm with which he had originally come. (sighs) You know, all that he had gone for was diffused. He was not able to do anything except have this miserable little covenant uh, that he had between him and Jacob that neither would harm the other. But, you know, that's not what he intended to do. He intended to harm Jacob. Certainly he intended to take everything away except send Jacob packing home. Go back to Isaac. I'm taking everything you had back with me. That certainly was his thought. But he headed back with none of that. There's no evidence that Laban would ever again impact Jacob's life. In fact, there's no scripture to indicate that either Laban or his sons ever played a role historically in the ongoing development of the nation of Israel because they are never mentioned again. So they just kind of went over the horizon, and, and, and as far as biblical history is concerned, completely out of sight. Laban is a powerful example of a greedy, self-sufficient man who put his own desires ahead of everyone and everything else, including his own daughters and his own grandchildren, and yet he experienced a mighty witness of God because with Jacob in his midst he saw his flocks multiply like he knew they couldn't possibly normally multiply he had seen God's blessing upon Jacob and his family and and he had an encounter with God himself God had come to him in a dream in the night and spoken to him so he knew God was real and what difference did this make to Laban None. he rejected that witness he refused to repent to admit any culpability in this situation. He refused to admit that his faith was meaningless, that his gods meant nothing. It's really a sad commentary, but it's the commentary of so many today in this world and in this country. The truth is proclaimed in this country on every corner, it seems. Churches everywhere and and broadcasts on television and radio, and, and yet the vast bulk of this nation reject that witness They will not repent. We're too prideful as a people to turn and admit our need. Well, Jacob is going to uh, pass from one difficult scene to the other. He can't just wipe his forehead and say, wow, that's over with, now I can sit back and relax, because now he has to face Esau. 32nd chapter of Genesis. Let's just read the first two verses to begin with. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he named that place Man Name. Now, when you read those first two verses, a very clear picture does not pop into your mind, probably. This is a very enigmatic little passage of Scripture. Now, Jacob has come through this this stressful encounter with Laban. And now he's got to turn and, and consider this other situation. I've got to make peace with Esau. How am I going to do it? Because the last time I saw Esau, he wanted my hide. And, of course, it's been 20 years. But, you know, in 20 years, somebody can either cool down or they can get hotter than ever before. What is going to be the situation? So as he breathed a sigh of relief, as Laban and his camels went over the horizon, he didn't breathe a sigh of relief for very long, because a new shadow crept over him. And I think that the thought of Esau sent chills up and down his spine. Now, it wasn't because Jacob was a coward. As we noted before, Jacob was probably physically as strong as Esau, maybe even more so. But fear can do an awful lot of strange things to you. As we heard, those of us who attended the fam, uh, Dad the Family Shepherd Conference this past uh, couple of days, one of the illustrations was uh, about a young man who had grown up uh, in the home where his his by raised by his mother alone, and she was a very uh, loose person, and so he was in contact with all kinds of vile things as he grew up. And uh, even though he grew up to be a big, strong, strapping person, he was afraid all the time. So afraid that in his anger, uh, of his fear, he'd punched, break doors and all kinds of things. But he was afraid of men, no matter whether they were tall, short, bigger, little, or whatever. He was just afraid of men. And, and you know, it just makes no sense. You know, it doesn't fit with what reality ought to be. But here Jacob is. He is afraid of Esau, in spite of the fact that one-on-one, he probably could take Esau out. But that's not the situation he faces here. You know, fear is, is a natural thing. Uh, you know, there, there are some good things about fear. It's good to be afraid of some things. You know, it keeps us alive. You know, it, you know if we have a little bit of fear of jumping off a 300-foot cliff, for example, um, that's probably a good fear. If we have a little fear of grabbing hold of a 220 volt bare wire, you know, that's probably a good fear. Uh, And of course, the scripture says we need to fear the living God in the sense of stand in awe of him, and and of course, if one doesn't know him, to literally fear him. But uh, in, in this case, there was not a real good reason for his fear, because God had made to Jacob so many promises. And yet... There was down inside him because these events had occurred when he was a, well, he wasn't a young man, but a younger man anyway, and, and all of this had built over the years, and it had almost become an inordinate fear as he considered this situation. But you know, God at that very moment came to him with assurance. God does that for his people, even if our fears are unfounded. God doesn't say... You dummy, you shouldn't fear that way. There's no reason for your fear. He would come along and give assurance and comfort. And that's what he's doing here. He gives tangible proof that he's going to be with Jacob. He gives Jacob an encounter with the invisible spiritual forces. He sees the angels. Now, we, you know, it doesn't say, whoa, I looked and there was... Twenty-five people over there, and they had bright, shining garments, and I knew they were angels because they had harps and wings. You know, uh, he doesn't say anything like that. The scripture just says that <laughs> uh, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Well, what kind of a meeting was this? Did he shake a hand, and say, "Oh, you're you're Gabriel," and you know, you're uh, Raphael, or and you're whatever, you know, um, Harpo, <laughs> whatever, and. Uh, no, it doesn't indicate that at all. But the indication is that they were camped nearby. And so Jacob in response says, here's my camp and the angels are camped here or, or maybe the angels are camped all around me. So is this is man name. This is the place of the two hosts or the two camps, literally here. And I think this experience is somewhat parallel to the one that happens a thousand years later in the case of Elisha. And you all know it well, but let me just read it again from the sixth chapter of 2 Kings. It's one of the neatest passages uh, in the Old Testament. Elisha was up in the northern part of, uh, of uh, oh, sort of where Samaria and, and Galilee come together up there. And, and they were at this town of Dothan, and if you travel to Israel today, you can see Dothan off in the distance there. It's still a mound where the old town of Dothan was there in the central part of the northern region of Samaria. Now when the now now uh, elisha was here in the town, and the town was surrounded by the Syrian army. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, what was his concern? Well, his concern, you see, was the fact that the Syrians had become aware that someone kept telling the Israelite king what the Syrians were doing. And so at first the king thought there was a spy in his camp, but later someone said, No, there's a prophet prophet of God in Israel. And that prophet of God knows what's going on clear over here, even in your own bedroom, king. So the king says, well, then the answer to that is get rid of that prophet. And so he knew that Elisha was a Dothan, so he brought his army down there. And uh, so the servant who's with Elisha uh, sees this army. And so he answered, and, and Elisha answers, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the enemy army may have been out there, but around that enemy army on the hills around were the chariots of fire. The angelic hosts were out there to defend Elisha and Elisha could see it because God gave him spiritual vision. And Elisha prayed, give my servant, O Lord, the vision to see into the spiritual realm too and to realize that it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit that the victory is won. And this 16th verse of of the 6th chapter of 2 Kings is something that we need to remember personally because we are not to fear because those who are with us are more than those who are with them that with God's people are all the hosts of heaven to accomplish God's will, and the forces of hell, the scripture says, will not prevail against God's church. The true church, that doesn't mean against the, the physical place, you know, building or the physical organization, but against the real people of God, the forces of hell, will not prevail. And, and that's what ja- Jacob is learning in this particular situation here. God is letting him see into the spiritual realm by making these angels visible to him so he knows that with him are these spiritual forces. The angels of God were on his side. Now, what is the purpose of an angel? Well, of course, the name angel derives from the word that means messenger, and so the idea is that the angels are messengers, but they are more than that because as we read more than once earlier in our study of Genesis here in the first chapter of Hebrews, uh, the scripture teaches us that the angels are ministering spirits who have been sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So the concept of a guardian angel is not just somebody's pipe dream. God has sent his angels to minister to his people and to help them through. And, and you all certainly have heard or read of the many missionary accounts particularly where missionaries have been defended by angels just as you would find them described in Scripture and, and how they've been miraculously preserved uh, from enemy attack. Now, Not all missionaries are saved from such a situation but we have to believe in the sovereignty of God and he chooses to do one thing this time and another and another time we may not know the reason but God knows. Verse 3 of the 32nd chapter of Genesis, verses 3 through 12. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the country of Edom. And he also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, with four hun- and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. And he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, the other company which is left will escape. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who didst say to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Lest he come and attack me, me, the mothers of the children, for thou didst say I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob is afraid of Esau's (laughs) attitude. After 20 years... What, what was his brother's attitude towards him? Jacob didn't know, so he decided to send out a probe. He sends some of his servants to go down to see Jacob, uh, to see Esau. Now, he had learned somewhere along the line where his brother was living, approximately. Somehow he had heard that, that, that uh, Esau was living down in Edom. Now, did he know that before he ever left Laban? It's possible. We don't know. It doesn't, doesn't say how he knew. Now, the name Seir, S-E-I-R, we came across that when we studied the 14th chapter of Genesis. And we discovered that the the Horites were living in (coughs) Mount Seir. And from a later chapter, which we haven't gotten to yet, we will discover that the name Seir apparently comes from a chieftain or patriarch of the Horites whose name was Seir. Mount Seir was the name given to the central mountain mass of Edom. Now, if you remember from your Bible geography, the Dead Sea down, which is on the uh, east side of the Judean area, if you go on the other side of the Dead Sea, the northern half of the Dead Sea is uh, bordered by Moab. The southern half of the Dead Sea is bordered by Edom, and then Edom stretches on down beyond that towards the Red Sea on the east side of the Arabah, uh, which is that sunken rift zone, uh, earthquake rift zone, that stretches all the way from Lebanon through the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan Valley, the Dead Sea, clear into the Red Sea, down through the Red Sea, into Ethiopia, and all the way down through Africa and out near the mouth of the Mozambique River. So Edom is in a kind of a wild area. It's very mountainous, It's uh, except up in the higher parts of the mountains where some rainfall uh, is found, it's, it's relatively dry in the lower areas, uh, both south and east and west of, of Edom. And so it's kind of a, kind of a wild country there. But in the middle is this rocky mountain mass. And uh, the later Edomites would would, uh, dwell in this area. And then after that, the Nabataean Arabs would hold this as a great center of power. And it would be the Nabataean Arabs who would build the rose-red city of Petra, which is that city just carved right out of solid rock. Uh, How many have been to Petra? Just three. Okay. And and my wife, yes. (laughs) Four, five. Five of us have been to Petra. Well, if you ever get a chance to go over in that part of the world and, and you can have the extra time to be there, by you know, try, to, try to get taken, Petra. It's, it's not that it plays a real biblical role, because it doesn't. But it's just a fantastic place to see. I've got a picture taken looking from inside one of the buildings. I mean, you're actually inside the living rock, but you're inside a building. You know, the ceilings are flat and the sides are... I mean, it's just like a square room, but it's carved right out of solid rock. And, and looking out through kind of a columned entrance out into the valley out there and it's really a, it's a, it's really a fabulous place it's where they filmed uh, the last crusade yes dubbed that up or that's the way it really looks well they they dubbed a lot of stuff up but yeah it's it's like that when they when you first come through the sick which is that narrow narrow little uh, pathway through there um, the first thing you can see is what's called the treasury and they showed that in the film there it's this big column temple like thing it's the first thing you see there. But some of the rest of it, they, you know, they, they kind of add a little here and there. But yeah, much, much of it is really how it looks. And if you get up above and look out across there, they show that picture uh, in, in an aerial view in that. And it's quite a... It's a foreboding area. It took the Romans a lot of effort to get in there because it was very difficult to uh, take this, this city from the Arabs later on. But anyway, exactly where Mount Seir was in relationship to that... Uh, It's hard to know, but it was in that central mountain mass somewhere. Now, the name Edom is applied to the area because it became the land of Esau and his descendants. And Edom means the red one, and that, of course, was who Esau was. Jacob carefully told his messengers that when you see him, when you see Esau, tell him, I want no political authority here, and I want none of your possessions because I have plenty of my own they were to be sure to call Esau Jacob's lord and refer to Jacob as Esau's servant. They were to make it clear that the only thing that Jacob wanted from Esau was friendship. I want nothing else. I don't want to go back to the past. I I don't want anything you have. I don't want you to bow before me. In fact, I'll bow before you. All I want is friendship. This is what he's saying. Now, the servants have got this task of going from Jacob's camp in the northern part of Gilead down to Mount Seir to where Esau was living. What they had to do was travel down the king's highway, which, of course, was just a trail that led down through the uh, more or less along the top of the plateau. But, of course, it dipped down into the river valleys and back out. I mean, it was not an easy route to travel. And, and they had to travel this route, and they had to go down and find Esau. Now, the distance was approximately 130 miles. Now, on a camel, they could have fairly easily covered that in three, maybe four days, depending on the ruggedness of the terrain that they had to cover. And then, it di- we, you know, we don't know how long they stayed with Esau. A day, certainly, maybe a couple of days. Uh, so what we're looking at is from the time the servants left until they arrived, at least a week, maybe 10 days. So Jacob was camped there waiting for news from his brother Esau. And you can imagine him, you know, all this time wondering, well, what's, what's Esau going to say? What's he going to do? Is he going to be madder a hornet, or, or is he going to be friendly, or, or what's going to be the deal? And so when the servants returned, can you imagine Jacob's anxiety? He wanted to hear. He probably started talking to him before they ever got off their camels to find out what was going on. And when the servant said, we talked to, Je- uh, to Esau, and Esau's coming to meet you.